The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash. This week, we're talking with Daria and Dominic in Ottawa. They hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. It took them six months from Mexico all the way up to Canada. And we're going to find out how they limited their waste on the trip, learn to live with less, and how it impacted their life once they got back to the city. Daria, Dominic, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. One of our overarching principles on the PCT was ultralight mentality, which means having less stuff, very light stuff, to tread lightly and swiftly as you're hiking. And another thing that entails that is a leave no trace principles, which means treading lightly on the land and reducing your impact while increasing enjoyment. So Derry and I took that quite to an extreme in the sense that we didn't even want to leave toilet paper out there. And we found natural methods to do that. And we, <laughs> we essentially tried to, yeah, not, not waste anything on trail. But when we'd get to cities, we definitely noticed that all the packaging, when we would resupply, because every week we had to resupply in a town, we had to buy a lot of packaged food like chips or bar wrappers and pre-made meals in aluminum coated bags that are really not recyclable. And we did accumulate a lot of waste food related. Nothing else really, like nothing else we wasted because we had always the same set of gear and we weren't really like consuming anything else than food. But the food waste packaging was one of our um, things that troubled us. And we made 20 boxes of food pre-trail and where we dehydrated some meals, but the meals we dehydrated weren't sufficient. We didn't pack enough calories and we also packed the same chili every two days for five months. And after the first month and a half, it got too redundant. So we had to supplement buying food. And that's when we, we purchased more wasteful goods. And we, we noticed we'd always leave our hotel or campground with a pile of trash. And that's something we wanted to change when we got back here. Yeah. You have an apple. I'm assuming that you guys could just sort of like huck it in the woods far from the trail. Or do you actually put it in a container and bring it back? Yeah. We would actually pack it out. So I, I'm a biologist and I know that like certain species or varieties of apples are like more native from the region. If it was a native cultivar of apple, yeah, we would chuck it. You'd be amazed at how many orange peels and banana peels are left on the side of the trail. And our ecosystems can't really decompose that. So really? you see all these peels left. And it's not that that will have a huge impact. What the impact is, is when people see that, they think it's acceptable to just leave more. And we've found time and time again, like different beautiful places in the wild where we think no human being has ever been. And like a pile of, of trash or like toilet paper, people not managing how they manage their human waste. And it's quite appalling, it's not pleasant. I ran the Grand Canyon when I was younger. So we spent 17 days uh, rafting and we had to pack out our poop. So we had um, a Gruber can, we yeah. called it, and we brought a toilet seat and we would switch duties um, yeah. with the group. So every night someone was on Gruber duty and we would set up the can <laughs> and we would put the, the toilet seat on top of it and yeah. 
everyone would do their business in the can and we would put this powder on it to make it not smell so bad and then we would lock it up. It was um, like an army ammo can mm. basically, so it was waterproof, so it didn't stink or anything. Well, not really. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah, we would pack it out. And it was the same thing, even an orange peel in the desert. We were told that it could last a thousand years. Now, I, I have trouble believing that because like no one's measured that. You don't leave anything in the desert. You pack everything out because it really... Yeah can have a bad impact. So I'm fascinated to find out that banana peels aren't a good thing to throw out here um, in this area. I guess our philosophy is pretty much everything that you pack in, you pack out. I mean, excluding your human waste. We all poop the same way. But like <laughs> the, for peeing as a girl, we, it's a bit different. And something that I um, used on the PCT was a pee rag. So essentially, I eliminated a bunch of, well, we didn't use toilet paper, but I eliminated a bunch of toilet paper by having a pee rag when I had to pee. So essentially, it was just like a handkerchief cut into four, and then I had one-fourth of the section hanging on the outside of my pack. When I had to go, I would pee, wipe, and then hook it on the outside of my pack, and it dries, and then the UV ray disinfects it. Oh. So then you can keep using it. And when I would go into town once a week, I would maybe wash it up, I let it dry, and then keep using it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so for that, the P-Reg is just this beautiful thing. And then when we went to the washroom, we would use natural materials. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we sure. just, rocks was our go-to, oh, I yeah. would say. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. would do rocks, yeah. So do you see other trash when you're hiking? Like, what are some sort of major items that you see when you're out there? Uh, wrappers are, are huge. And it's even that little tear from the cord of the bar that just flicks off. And those are super common, but it's kind of annoying to see those. Peels. In the fire pit, people try to burn non-burnable trash. But the next people that come often find the aluminum lining is just like crumpled up all in there. I've taken the habit of digging it out, but it, it's unfortunate that we'll just leave that because then when the wind blows, these fragments of aluminum or, or plastic, they like disperse and, and then, you know, they go out in, in the woods. The parks actually do give you a yellow bag that says pack out your non-burnable trash, but people still think they can burn anything and it's not the case. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to know exactly what you can and can't do with certain pieces of garbage. We see that in the cities all the time with recycling. Um, every yeah. municipality is different. So, you know, it's those foam meat containers, like do you recycle them or do you don't? It completely depends on where you are. Plastic bags, like Victoria doesn't take those mm. in the recycling. And it's nice to inform yourself before you go anywhere just to find out what the rules are. And A big aspect of getting rid of a lot of that confusion was to just eliminate it out of my life. I don't want to deal with that issue of like being confused about, you know, how to recycle things properly and and in the backcountry, like what you can burn or not. So for me, it was like the solution was the plastics that I do know, okay, I'll buy those and recycle those properly or I just avoid the other stuff. So that's why it comes to like just using less and just being more aware. And yes, it does have a little bit of a hit to your ease of life. I wouldn't say quality of life, but ease. Yeah, it can be more work, I think, until you get into that groove. You know, I'm sure that a few months in on the trail, you guys just had your system sort of down pat and you were saying that you dehydrated a lot of your food. So tell me about that. Food, I think, would be one of our biggest lessons of the PCT. When we came back, we definitely changed the way we ate when we went out into the backcountry. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah. 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 And so when we were on the PCT, we were actually vegan at the time. So we did send ourselves only vegan food. So we thought, okay, on trail, we won't necessarily have that ability to source meats and, and dairy easily. So let's just go vegan. How we do our breakfasts is we'll actually make kind of two bundles. So we'll do a bundle, like a Ziploc bag of steel cut oats, and then another Ziploc bag with our toppings. So we'll have cranberries, raisins, chia seeds, cinnamon, some we, chocolate. We always put some dark chocolate chips in there. That was in the bag. We would actually put the oats and the yeah. ingredients, awesome twist top two cup container to rehydrate the steel cut oats overnight. So we we actually reused that for months and months and months. Okay, so, so it's sort of like a Tupperware It's a, a Tupperware, yeah. It was oh, a Tupperware, perfect. super lightweight because that's really important in the backcountry. Yeah. Did you get like a Whisper Light stove, like an MSR? Like what did you use for a stove? We actually cooked on fire for the beginning. Had a lightweight metal pot stuck right on the fire and that worked really well until it started to snow and rain like crazy and the we were in alpine regions with not always a lot of good wood source. So then we bought a jet boil, which is a lightweight, very quick burning butane canister stove. But we also don't like using fossil fuels when we don't need to. And especially because most of the time in the backcountry, you want to do a fire. So learning to cook on fire is actually one of our next big projects. We've sort of dabbled in it, but we want to stop bringing fossil fuels out. And the canister after you have to recycle it or get rid of it. And that can produce some waste for sure. We're actually looking at a stove. You make it yourself and you put twigs and you make a fire in the stove and you can put your pot on. And there's a lot of do-it-yourself. There's a model called the BioLite. And those are all using like natural fuels. I've never <clears throat> thought of another alternative really other than bringing those canisters. It's so interesting because like at a small scale, we only see it ourselves. Like so we go out and we have that one can. But when we were hiking on the PCT, we would go into towns and because there's thousands of hikers, there would be boxes full of like half empty canisters. I mean, it's a whole, I guess, philosophy of like changing your life because you're one of, you know, thousands or millions and... And if you do it, then you might encourage other people to do it. And it's more of the scale of it. And you might not see the scale of it because it's out of sight, out of mind kind of thing, but doesn't mean that you shouldn't change your actions. And so in terms of fuel, that was a big one for us. We used the jet boil, which had a propane butane can. And yeah, we really wanted to change that when we got back. And so we started learning about it. And, and I think the best thing is cooking on fire or developing a stove that you put twigs in. So you're just burning natural materials. One of the models yeah, is one, called the BioLite. Bio the BioLite actually converts the heat into electricity. You have, it has a USB insert oh that can charge your phone or charge a headlamp. So that, that that's what they call BioLite because there's an electrical transfer. But there's all a really simple ones that you just stick the twigs in. And the, the, what's novel about it is that it doesn't require lots of twigs. It requires just a little bundle. And because it's so compact and efficient, once you start that fire, it can convert, boil your water or cook for, I think it's about half hour that you have heat. So it's it's an amazing way to, to use the wood that people will burn anyway. People in Canada, we love our fires. In the deserts of the United States, there's not a lot of wood. And in Alpine regions that are sensitive, they don't recommend uh, necessarily doing that because there's not a lot of wood to begin with. But in Canada, there's wood abound and that's our best fuel source. We think nature is like separate from the city. It's away from the city, but it isn't. And so this is an opportunity to just kind of like be more involved when you're outside. Were you able so. to forage at all? Like, did you find berries or anything that you could eat 
Yeah, there were uh, in August in the state of Washington, it was huckleberry and blueberry season, and we would spend hours just like sitting in bushes like bears and gorging ourselves. (laughs) And uh, we actually fished a few times, which is a little hook. Did it work? Yeah, we caught some golden trout in in, uh, the Sierra Nevadas because there's tons of them, but just one small one. We hiked about 40 kilometers a day was our average hiking speed because we had a light pack and we were strong and that was our kind of job for six months we we started flying through and you need a lot of calories to do that and so i i needed at least 4,500 to 5,000 calories a day dare a little bit less I actually gained 25 pounds after that hike of muscle pretty much and with dairy, all the berries all yeah the all the berries and, and dare gained 13 uh where it was just muscle wow. yeah so foraging is fun but it, there's no way, especially when you're backpacking, that that can like supplement your caloric needs. So it's really important to like dehydrate the right meal, bring out the right meals. And what we figured out on the PCT is pretty much any meal you like eating in your home, whatever is your favorite dishes, take that, dehydrate that, and bring it out. Our dehydrator has really like become a community item that we love sharing. And we're like strong advocates of nutrition, eating well on trail. You can always bring like a block of cheese or like salt and pepper. Bring out spices in a reusable container is like a really go-to. Olive oil in a reusable container. Like small containers are, are really key. And so one book that really inspired us is it's 101 Ultralight Tips. And it's by Mike Cleveland. He's an, a really like no-waste guy to begin with. And he talks a lot about collecting these little containers and spice kits because that way you can really like have delicious meals and not produce waste and all it takes is a little bit of uh, planning ahead and preparing which is actually the first principle of leave no trace the first principle is plan ahead and prepare which totally applies to going zero waste it's it's part of it you have to plan ahead and prepare when you go out or when you're shopping and stuff like that it's so much planning yeah, yeah. so much planning you don't need to spend $350 on a really fancy dehydrator. We met people on trail who dehydrate everything in their oven. That's it. Just their oven. Energy use, it might be a bit mm-hmm. less energy intensive to use a dehydrator versus your oven if you're dehydrated. Because it does take a long time. But definitely you don't need to invest in a really fancy dehydrator. And another thing that I, I loved about planning ahead and preparing for trips is essentially if you're cooking just double your recipe Mm -hmm. and then dehydrate half of it. So you don't necessarily need to go out and have like an extra cooking session for just your backcountry meals. No, the week before you're heading out camping, you can just double your recipes, take half of it, dehydrate that, and then you're good to go uh, when you do go out. Yeah, and since you have nine trays, you can have your meal on four trays and then slice up some strawberries. And we had a really good apple recipe where you just slice apples, put a bit of cinnamon on them. Normally fruits and veg take between eight and 10 hours to dehydrate. So what we do is we put it overnight, turn it on, it has a low hum, and then you wake up in the morning and it, if we did spaghetti sauce, it smelled like <laughs> delicious. And so the, and our energy bills didn't go up, even when we did five and a half months worth. And this is if you really wanted to get backcountry camping, because if you're doing more car camping trips, you can bring fresh food out, like whatever you like eating in normal life, bring that out because you have the metal backpack. That's what the car is. It's, it's easy to transport so much food because you're not carrying on your back. But as soon as you're going out multi-day and you have to carry on your back or in a canoe, 
So you showed me your backpack and it's really small. It's like a third of the size of my backpack and I yeah. fill my giant backpack when I go out for one night. But yeah. this is, it's so small. Like it's really a tiny backpack. So I'm wondering what you slept in and how you kept warm. I just want to say the first time I did my big trek, I literally burst the seam out of a backpack. So we started there. We definitely started there with the sore shoulders, packing out your fears. We did that. And so eventually everything adapted from those mistakes and then just questioning those mistakes and then just, yeah, researching, learning, talking to other hikers who had tiny packs and is like how did you do that and then just being so inspired by other people who did different things but again I think a lot of it comes down to simplicity so I think the first step is just getting rid of a lot of stuff we pack out our fears and I did it when I did my first solo hike oh I'm scared to be alone so I will bring all these things that will comfort me when I'm alone in the woods and then people pack out their fear in terms of clothing we're scared to be hungry so we bring way too much food so many things we're scared to be cold and all that stuff so we're looking at the sleeping bag and this is really it's really really thin so tell me how does this keep you warm <laughs> okay so first of all this is two pieces so Dom and I sewed this sleeping bag or but it's actually a quilt so it doesn't go underneath us so it's more like a blanket, a blanket. yeah and because we were two and we decided okay we're gonna sleep together with two inch gaps between us the whole trip we decided we would make a two-person sleeping a uh, quilt sorry this zipper breaks it up so we can split the weight of Carrying our it. quilt so yeah. you actually sewed this yourself yeah. So we sewed oh this God. ourselves yeah. through the direction of uh, our ultralight guru. His name is Ray Jardine. He's the one who pioneered ultralight backpacking in North America. And he was a big advocate that outdoor stores, although they have their place, they also make gear way too heavy, too many straps, a lot of stuff you don't need, and it's very expensive. Outdoors becomes a thing for people that have a lot of money. And he his advocacy was... You can make better gear yourself for cheaper. And so he says, go for it. He's pretty philosophical in his ideas too. But he says, instead of watching TV every night, why don't you learn how to sew? And then you can make your gear. And Darian and I said, yeah, brilliant. And so we followed his directions to make this quilt. It's a synthetic two-layer. I was not that good of a sewer. Daria was much uh, more proficient. <laughs> but yeah, it was a really cool project. It took us more hours than we thought, but it was so worth it because our sleeping bag weighed, it's 17 ounces per side, which is just over a pound, which is absolutely super light compared to a good sleeping bag of this grade will cost you about at least $300, if not more, and weigh at least twice this. We saved a lot of money. And How much did this cost to make? That was $200, $200 Canadian. It was 150 American, but we had to order it. So 200 Canadian so for, yeah. for both, for two. For two people. So that's $100 each. each. Yeah. Oh, wow. We would have paid $500 or $300 each for a sleeping bag. And yeah. what is this material on the outside and the inside? It's a nylon, so it's a nylon on, the on the outside, so it's water resistant, not waterproof. Your sleeping bag is always protected as your, your most dried piece of gear. And then there's yarn, wool yarn, that is placed in a grid format to sort of keep um, oh. the insulation from shifting. Yeah, mm -hmm. which is a problem um, with down, right? When exactly. you, if you wash it or whatever, then it clumps and... Yeah. That's it. Because this is a two-person quilt, uh, we actually designed the measure so that if we had a fight, 
we would be able to like yeah two inches in between two inches us. Between that was us it to have a little bit of space yeah but when you shift there's like a little wind draft to protect wind from coming on the sides you can go up in alpine environments up to about zero degrees celsius maybe a little under that but this is not meant for winter camping or like extreme fall or beginning spring but although we did use it in that time we were a little bit cold because it doesn't have any protection under if you have a good sleeping pad though you don't need that that's his other argument you don't need a lot of material under you if you have a good sleeping pad because when insulation is compressed it doesn't really insulate that much to begin with so that's why the quilt is a kind of novel way to do it we use the same methodology for all of our gear not necessarily made all of our gear but the same approach of like lightweight and functional and as inexpensive as possible yeah, so we were also university students at the time. We didn't have the biggest budget, and that's why we made decisions like this. And also, I think one of the big realizations for us is when we were making our gear was was just noticing how much time and effort it does take yeah. and how much you're really paying to outsource other people doing the work for you. So that's what you're paying for. And then if it's branded, you're also paying for that. It just takes a bit more time on your end to mm. make. But we also had so much fun doing it. And yeah, we, we honestly loved your quilt. And everybody was like, what are you sleeping in? And, you know, and then we started that conversation and shared with others. And that was, I think, just part of the beauty well, of this our, is our quilt. This is incredible. You call it a quilt, but it looks like any sleeping bag that you would see at any outdoor store. It's it's amazing. You must have used a sewing machine, obviously. Yeah. They're very straight yeah. Perfect stitches. Oh, I yeah, was going to say the opposite. My, my, gra- my grandma's really old sewing machine that's like 50 years old. They last forever, don't we, they? They last forever and we used that and it was cool. My mom got involved and it was a really rewarding process. And other gear like our backpacks we ordered and there's a lot of good companies that they do things by hand. We bought our packs from a company called Mountain Laurel Design and they are super light. They're under a pound. They're 13 ounces and they can hold up to 50 pounds of weight very comfortably. Again, it's a really simple design. That one was about $200 Canadian, and it doesn't have a frame, so you can literally compress it into the palm of your hand. And we uh, we actually cut a lot of the stuff, even on an ultralight pack. Derry and I realized that we don't need hip strap or chest strap when we're hiking. Oh no? Because yeah. we have light packs, and you're, it also broadens your shoulders. I was really buff after the trail. It like expands your shoulders. It's not that the weight is crazy on your shoulders, it's just that it's so light, your pack, it's like a day pack. You don't need the straps. And it's also good for your hip movement. Yeah, especially as a woman, I noticed, or or not just me, but women in general, we, we do walk a lot with our hips. And I think men do too, yeah. but it's a bit more, I think, more of like a movement for women. And so when I went out there and you know, those women packs, you put this big like buckle around your hips and you're just compressing yourself inwards. And I think a lot of injuries are because we're restricting our natural movement of how we walk when we put all this weight on our hips and we're like strapping it in and like tightening it up. And then we walk a little different. And then yeah, of course your hips and your knees are going to hurt after that. And so yeah, we just cut ours off and people were like, how are you walking without them? But the reality is it was more comfortable. comfortable. Like you just, yeah, you felt more free. You're like, okay, my body can do whatever it wants. And then we would do these things called shakedowns where we would look at people, open up their packs, go through all the gear, and we would just literally be like, you do not need this. And we would just take it out of their pack. And then they would send boxes home and we we literally got rid of like, I would say hundreds of pounds of people's gear that we just educated them and really questioned them like, do you need this? So what kind of things were you getting rid of? 
Often lots of clothes. clothes. People would bring doubles mm-hmm. and triples of like quadruple like quadruples sometimes literally of, like six pairs of something and yeah it was like... that and that was really excessive electronics were really excessive and Derry and i had a cheap little cell phone that we thought was useful to communicate with home and we had a little camera as well also i would say like sunscreen people would bring yes. out deodorant people would bring out all these i don't even know what to call them like body care products i get it you want to take care of your body but also like soaps deodorant Things like that don't belong in the backcountry. This is what we believe in. Like we're not anti-hygiene. We are super for being clean, but we also realize like those sometimes people way overshoot what they need. And also streams and lake shores are sensitive ecosystems. And that's why we say soap doesn't belong in the backcountry because even biodegradable soap, you shouldn't use that to wash yourself in a lake because even those suds, they are organic matter that can cause algal blooms and there's evidence that show that. Oh, I had no idea. Honestly, if you want to wash yourself, you really need to do it away from a water source so that it infiltrates in the ground and it will break down before it goes to the sensitive water system. Oh, right. So just get a big pot of water or something and take it off into the bushes a little bit. That's it. That's it. And you can jump in the lake, but don't put soap in that water itself. So the Canadian Leave No Trace standards, it's 70 meters from the water source to where you would dispose of you know, your soaps. And then yeah. in terms of sunscreen, I'm not a huge sunscreen fan, but the whole thing is just, again, covering up. It's as simple as like yeah. finding thinner layers so you don't expose your skin. When I used to go camping, I would just use sand. So I would go down to like the water or whatever and just grab some sand and like rub it around my pot. Yeah. That's how we do it. Yeah, that's yeah. how we would do it. Absolutely. And even if you're doing that, you would still want to put it away from the water source. When you're in nature, you start thinking about it more because you've gained an appreciation for what nature is because we're often removed from that in the city. So I think it's okay if you go out and make mistakes and don't necessarily, like we're at the extreme level now, we've evolved to this point and adapted from mistakes and failures and doing things wrong and and you build that from experience and, and time out in nature. But I think they go hand in hand. So. Just because you might have an impact when you go out in the backcountry does not mean you shouldn't go into the backcountry because mm-hmm. if you go into the backcountry, you might realize something or, or start developing that thought process or awareness of your impacts on this world much greater than you and then come back into the city and start applying that philosophy, that mindset into your daily life. Absolutely. And that extends in both contexts. So I think for us, it was just... Yeah, learning it. Yeah, I think we were very mindful people before we went off into the PCT, but then coming back and just being like even more. Because why are we being zero waste? Why are we eating consciously and not producing, like trying to kind of limit our consumption? And the reason is because we see and know the value of the environment. But I think when you're removed from that, you won't necessarily change the way you think and your action. What was it that you guys used for water? We actually didn't filter water on the Pacific Crest Trail. We drank straight from the source. We educated ourselves about it. Both of us are scientists, biologists. We know about like the different organisms, bacteria, and uh, protozoans in the water. It was a very educated decision. Actually, we filtered one or two sources that were super sketchy. So we had brought uh, emergency pills for that. We also had a Sawyer Squeeze, which is a squeeze filter that weighs two ounces that you essentially screw it to a bottle and then squeeze water through it. Very light filter and we had zero problems. 
for six months. No problems. You never got sick. Or never got sick. Never a grumbly stomach or anything no, like that. Not, not once. Most people are camping in an RV or if they're camping, car camping or something, yeah. then you can basically just bring your water so you can get one of those big coolers, you know, that yeah. our parents used to take when we were little. Like, you used to see those all the time and, and now we don't see them anymore. If you go to a barbecue or something, people are bringing those single-use plastic bottles. Yeah. Whereas before we just filled up a big container and brought yeah. some cups, you know, it'd be nice to see us sort of returning to that. I think yeah. that's sort of one thing we can do when we're camping with vehicles. Um, what did you call it? The metal... The metal backpack. The metal, the metal backpack. backpack. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a great piece of gear. Yeah. And we're not... Like, we love doing backcountry camping, but sometimes we like camping with our cars too. And we appreciate the luxury of like being able to eat healthier and, and bringing like reusable bottles and not producing waste because you don't need to do that. Yeah, I mean, you can even take jars if you have like a nice box to put them in in your car, Exactly, right? yeah. So essentially, if you're going out with your car, you can easily do a zero-waste camping. Yeah. You need to connect with the environment in order to love it. You need to learn about it then to like know about not filtering water or cooking on fire or ultralight camping. Until you've gone out there and felt the pressure of the weight on your shoulders, you won't know how to adapt to a lighter style of treading on the land. And toilet paper, until you've wiped with rocks or water in India, they use water to wipe. Uh, until you've done that experience, you won't know how to not use toilet paper. And so that's kind of what we've learned is that by connecting with nature and falling in love with it, and then learning about it, then you really want to protect it. And that's sort of our philosophy. That's so awesome. That's such a good way of looking at it. Yeah. We buy all this gear, but then we, you know, we go out in the backcountry, we're throwing our packs, we're not taking care of things. But your gear takes care of you, so you need to take care of your gear. And that's what extends the shelf life. Yeah. And treating it delicately with respect because we don't often do that and not just backpacking gear but things you have in your life take care of it and it will last much longer but yeah it's true if you can just take care of your gear then it doesn't go to landfill that's awesome but also a great tip that I didn't mention earlier with the food is a bar. One great alternative that we started doing is we make our own protein balls now. So it's super simple. So get a food processor. And I think you can make some versions without a food processor if you don't have access to that. And essentially you just blend in nuts. And then again, there's so many recipes but like nuts, dates, peanut butter, honey, something sticky. We put chia seeds, cacao powder, flax seeds. So very healthy super nutritious, high in fiber, high in protein, but you can make them yourself. When we make them, we make them in bulk and we'll freeze some and then essentially we'll just take what we need and then go. And you're still having that sustenance once again, but without that wrapper. Right, that we just yeah. don't need. That one I think is a really simple solution to get rid of bars, which is kind of like what we think of when we go out to hike, day hikes. Mm -hmm. It's healthier too because then you don't get all those preservatives because one thing those companies want to do, and not to say anything bad about the companies, but they need to have a longer shelf life because they want to sell them. And if you have something yes. that's going to expire in you know, two weeks and they don't sell, then the company loses money. So they want to pack those things full of preservatives and yeah. use packaging so that it, it really keeps them airtight, but then often those aren't recyclable. And so... Yeah, it's so much better if you can get away from those bought packaged things and do it yourself. If you have time, that's another big thing too, right? If everybody's working, how do you get time to do this stuff? Well, we have the time. It's prioritizing, right? We try to really not say, I don't have time for something because you do have the time. You just need to prioritize to make the time. Well, the cool part too about more people joining this movement is that there are more places that you can buy it for the people who are really crunched or just don't even have time to plan to have time. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes I have trouble doing that. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, no, thank you. Awesome. Yeah, Thanks for really having great. us. We really enjoyed this.
That was Daria and Dominic. I met up with them in Ottawa, Ontario. What an incredible, life-changing experience. Six months hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. This week on my own countdown to zero waste, it's been one full month since we installed a bidet in our bathroom and we reduced our consumption of toilet paper down from six rolls to only two rolls. That's per month. Over a year at the same rate, we will have saved 48 rolls of toilet paper, which reduces packaging waste and the destruction of forests. Over the next 10 years, we will have saved nearly 500 rolls of toilet paper, but we plan to buy another bidet for our second washroom and reduce our consumption even further. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.